walking through the book of Revelation, and today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 7. And so if you have your Bible with you, if you want to grab the Pew Bible, you can go ahead and open to the back of it and open to Revelation 7, as that's where we will be reading from. So far, we've walked through the seven letters to the churches, and we've understood that to mean that there, it is a letter to the completion of the church, to all the churches, not just to those seven, though there was something specific that each of those churches needed to know about what was going on in their church. And then we turned our gaze to the throne room of heaven, and we got this wonderful, majestic, splendorous picture of the Father seated upon the throne. And then we saw the Lamb who was slain take the scroll from the hand of the Father and begin to break the seals. And we started to talk about how the seals are a representation of the trials and tribulations that are faced upon the earth, both today in the past and to come in the future. But that ultimately, the good news of the passage was that the wrath of the Lamb isn't poured out on the saints, it's poured out on the unbelievers. And so the wrath of the Lamb isn't toward the children of God. And that's good news for us. But today we open and we're at what we like to call an interlude. It's a, it's a chapter that's inserted in the middle of the events that John is seeing, and it kind of just puts a pause on everything. And we get to see a new picture of something completely different before we return back to what he was seeing previously. And so let's hear these words from John in Revelation chapter 7 during the interlude. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those having been sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 having been sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 having been sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, 
And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These, clothed in the white robes, who are they, and from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. And he who sits on the throne will dwell over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, as we hear these words this morning, may our hearts be uplifted and encouraged by the good word that you have brought to our souls. Let us remember, Lord, that as we read this book, it is one to be encouraging to the saints and a revelation of the splendor of Jesus, our King. And so let these words be formative to who we are in the way that we follow you, O Jesus. May you be made great within us. And may we be humbled before you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if I shared with you that Revelation chapter 4 is one of the most formative chapters in me personally in my worship to Jesus, chapter 7 has to be the greatest chapter that I've ever read about the church and what the church is supposed to look like and what our eternal hope in this church body should be. And so we're going to look about, I look at it and look at three different things that are happening in this passage today. The first comes in verses 1 through 3, where John says he saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, mind you, this is not John asserting that the earth is flat, as some might try to tell you today, uh, but the in fact, it is just a metaphor, again, of maybe the four uh, angels that, that hold back the winds, which at the time meant oftentimes destruction, meant ferocity, meant something that came to do harm. And so the wind oftentimes was not seen as a good thing. In fact, actually, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, when God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, the literal translation of that is with the wind. And so they wouldn't have interpreted that with a cool, nice, calm breeze. 
but with a terrifying ferocity with which the Lord actually comes and walks with them. It should create a sense of awe of the fact that the Almighty God comes down and walks with Adam and Eve. And in the same way, we see that these angels are holding back the four winds at the four corners of the earth. The ones that would come and blow on the earth and the sea and the tree. Verse 2, and then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to those four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. Well, here's the first thing that I need us to kind of understand. Again, I think I've said it before, but if we read Revelation and we try to think of it chronologically, it's not going to make a lot of sense. And particularly here at the beginning of chapter 7, during this interlude, no longer are we talking about something that is happening in consecutive order from uh, chapter 6 going on into chapter 7, but I think we're actually taking a look back before any of the wrath of God is allowed to come, before any of the natural disasters that we read about as the uh, sixth seal was being broken in chapter 6, as the you know, heavens and earth were falling down and all the unbelievers were trying to hide out in the caves and harm was coming to the earth <clears throat> and to them, this is now before that. And the angel is saying to the four angels, hold on, before the wrath of the Lamb can be revealed on the earth, we have to seal the saints. We have to seal the slaves of God that are upon the earth. <clears throat> and so this might mean something quite literal, that before the time when wrath comes upon the earth, like those who are on the earth need to be sealed. They need to receive faith in Jesus and receive the seal of the Lord. But I want to think of this more as something that happens across all time before the wrath of the Lamb comes. I want us to look back at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when Jesus is talking to the disciples about the signs of the end of time, but also the signs of when the end of time shall come. And he says this, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so one thing we have to acknowledge is that Jesus is saying this 2,000 years ago about the witness of the gospel going out into all the world, to all the nations, to all people, to every tribe, to every tongue, and until every single person, every group of people on the earth has heard the gospel, until that happens, the end will not come. It won't reach us. And there are still several people groups today that have not heard the word of God. And so we have to first think first and foremost, when will the end come? When every single group has heard 
as a witness who Jesus is. You see, there is a waiting that all who are to become saints shall hear the testimony of Jesus before the, the end comes. All who are to become saints and followers of Jesus have to hear of his testimony before that end will come. And we need to think about that in the context of, verse, of chapter 7 because we are waiting for that harm, for the end, for the wrath of God, for the Lamb to receive the reward of his suffering, but it will only come when everybody who is to be sealed has been sealed. And so when we start thinking about that in the context, we think that the seal is actually about the group of people in all time to receive Jesus, not just those in the last days. Well, you might be asking, well, how do I, how do I confirm that this seal is something not just given to last day saints? Well, I would point us to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Let's see if I can find it. Did I not mark it? Of course not. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say this. In him, that is in Jesus, you also, after listening to the word of truth, so after hearing the word proclaimed to you, after hearing the gospel of the kingdom of God, after hearing about what Jesus did for you on the cross in wiping away your sin that you might receive his righteousness, when you have listened to that word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed yourself, you are, what, sealed. You receive a seal. You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So saints are sealed. At the moment that we receive the good news of the gospel into our lives, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal of the saints on our lives. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence and, and dwells within us. That is the seal for the saints. In fact, if we turn to Luke chapter 15, you might recognize this passage, it's a pretty common one, pretty popular one, but I want to talk about it and see something that maybe we haven't seen before. This is the parable of the prodigal son, which I also wish was named the parable of the prodigal son and the elder brother, because it's really about both of them. So hear this, starting in verse 18 in Luke 15. This is the the prodigal son who went away and after squandering everything and finding himself waking up in a pigsty, he says, I will rise up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he rose up and he came to his father 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no no longer worthy to be called your son. How many of us ever felt like this? Where maybe our sin has gotten to a place where we're like, Lord, I don't feel worthy to even come to you. I don't feel worthy for you to call me your child, to call me your, to, for you to call me your son or your daughter. Gosh, I don't feel like I'm even worthy to become close to the throne of grace and mercy, even though I know it's available to me. We oftentimes don't feel the, the pull of, the, of this grace that God has for us in our lives. And like the prodigal son, he doesn't understand or comprehend the real heart of the father. But here's what happens. The father runs out quickly, and after the son says to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Here's how I want to bring this to the seal. The ring that would have been placed on that younger son's hand would have been a signet ring. And that signet ring on it would have been the seal of the family. It would have been the family crest. It would have been the same ring that they would have used in order to mark official documents and press it into wax so that everyone knew this is my signature. I belong to this family. I'm a part of this group of people. And not only do I belong to it, I'm an heir to it. I'm, I'm one of the sons of, of the patriarch. It was a seal. It was a seal given to the son in his weakest, most broken moments of his life. When he was ready to be called a slave, the father ran out and said, No, you're still my son, and I love you. Take the ring and set it as a seal, not just on your finger, but upon your heart. And so they threw a party. But here's the other half of the story. The elder brother learns that the younger brother who squandered all of his inheritance, everything, who shamed the family by walking away, is getting a party thrown in his honor, and he's re-received the seal of the family. And this is the older brother in verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and never have I neglected a command of yours. And yet never have you given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And his father said to him, child, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. What I think is so interesting about this is that the older son had 
the ring on his finger. He had the seal, but he never acknowledged it in his heart. When the younger son wanted to come to the father and say, I'll be a slave to you, the father said, no, you are my son, and the younger son believed it. The older son, on the other hand, comes to the father and said, Am I, have I not been a son to you? And yet, really what we see is he's been nothing but a slave. Acting like a slave, living as a slave, not living as one sealed from the father. And the attitude of the elder brother is to not live as one who had the seal upon his person, but to live as one as if that seal never even existed. And that's significant, and that's important. And I, want, and I only bring that up, and I know that feels like it's a really big jump and a really big stretch. But in Revelation 7, it talks about the seal that should be placed upon their forehead. In other words, the seal should be visible. In other words, the seal is something that you live out, that you express, that people acknowledge and notice. It's not something literally stamped on your forehead. I think as oftentimes we read that passage and we've been taught that God is going to come and the angels are going to give us a big right on the forehead and everyone's going to see it and everyone's going to know. Just like, you know, like, like receiving a notary seal, right? Because it's an official document and they got to stamp it and they got to sign it and everyone's like, it's notarized. And the saints are notarized by God. Ain't it great? But that's not what this is. The seal is the Holy Spirit. And the forehead is our lived out expression of our faith. James told us in his letter that faith without works is dead. Not because works give us faith, earn us righteousness, but because faith produces works within us. Because we rightly believe, we rightly do. And so people will see the seal of the Holy Spirit's significance within us in the world. And so saints are sealed, not just with the Holy Spirit within, but with an outward expression for all to see. And so the angel is saying, yeah, there are probably going to be those that think they've got this seal and this significant because they say that they're Christian, but their works have nothing to do with God. So you can live like the elder brother and still be a slave, or you can be like the younger son, noticing his own sinfulness, came to the father, and the father said, but you're my son, and accept it. And not just receive the seal on your finger, but in your heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But then we get into this weird part where it starts talking about, well, how many have been sealed? Who are actually sealed? And you're probably like, okay, well now he's just talked about the whole time how receiving the Holy Spirit is the seal for the saints. But now we're reading about only 144,000 receiving the seal. And so it doesn't make sense to me. Is everybody sealed that believes in God, or is it only 144,000 people? Well, let's think about that number real quick, right? So 144 is 12 times 12, and then a derivative of the number 10. So it's 144 times 10 
thousand, right? And so what you're getting, or a thousand, not 10,000, Austin can't do math, but it's okay. Um, Ashley would be ashamed right now as our uh, math teacher, but here we go. 12 is significant because it is the number of the tribes of Israel, right? But we have that number doubled. So it's 12 and 12, not just a single 12, but doubly 12, 12 squared. So we're not just talking about the tribes of Israel, but we're also maybe pushing it to think about, well, then there were 12 disciples. And 10, and any number, a derivative of 10 in Hebrew numerology is a complete number. It's completion. And so 144,000 isn't a number of specification, but a number that signifies all who are to be sealed will be sealed. It's not specifically just 144,000, but every saint is included in that number. In fact, oftentimes we read throughout all the New Testament how, in fact, the church is now the new Israel. So if we want to think about it strictly from a tribal sense, that only the tribes of Israel are sealed, well, the church are the new tribes. James 1.1, to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion greetings. James isn't writing to just Jews. He's writing to the church to whom he referred to as the 12 tribes. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, and those who walk in step with this, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul is writing to the Galatians, a church of followers of Jesus Christ, but he calls them Israel to God. And so the church is a part of the tribes of Israel. I mean, we read throughout Romans that the church are now the sons of Abraham, right? We, we read that, that we are to provoke Israel to jealousy for the Israel that we have become. We've been grafted into Israel. And so when we read that part of this passage, we don't need to think of it as a literal 144,000 of just the Israelites that will be marked. But this is all of the saints, And you want to know how I know that even more? Because then we turn to verse 9. And after these things, after I heard the number, then I looked and I saw a great multitude which no one could count from every, every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so now we see what we heard we now see. But this time, we're not just seeing those that had been marked on earth. We're seeing those who had been marked and now find themselves on the other side in heaven. And so again, I told you, you can't always read this chronologically. You can't be like, well, this is just all happening step and step and step. Well, now when we look into heaven, what we see is the multitude of all who have ever been saved. After the new heaven and the new earth are established, everybody, all the saints will come and gather around the throne of God and worship him in his holy name. 
all of them, every single one, gather as a great multitude from every tribe, every people, every tongue, before this throne, and they worship the Lord. Here's what I want to say. I want to say two things about that. The first is I want us to take witness to the diversity that exists within the church. The diversity that exists within the church. The importance there is I think that oftentimes churches can be too homogenous. We look out and we see a whole bunch of people that look exactly like us instead of people that look different from us. The church is a diverse group of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And I've said it before, our church can't be everything to every person in Griffin. But we are to be something to a lot of different people in Griffin, not just people that look like me or look like you. And I don't think that applies just to nations or ethnicities or races. But I love how James says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he talks about what happens when we show favoritism in the church. He says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You have not made, you have, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. If people walk into this church and look different than you and speak different than you, and your first thought is, I don't want to go say hi to them because, ew, that's a millennial term, ew, then you've already created within your heart judgment, which is not the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that resides within you cannot hate or be disgusted by the Holy Spirit that resides in somebody else that doesn't look like you. It's not possible. And so I don't want to just take this from a racial standpoint. I want to take it from a socioeconomic standpoint, from a where-do-you-live-in-Griffin standpoint, from a what's-your-education-background standpoint. From a what's your mental capacity or your IQ or your EQ or all the whatevers that you could define a person by, if you show favoritism to any one particular group, you aren't living out kingdom mentality and you certain, certainly are not living out the church as described in Revelation chapter 7. And look, I have prejudices and biases within me that influence me all the time. I have been there. I'm sure I have been there this past week. But if I want us to look like the church of every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping Jesus, 
I have to do something about that within myself. I have to acknowledge that it exists, and then I have to go to Jesus and through the power of his Holy Spirit, let him change me so I don't do it again. That's a personal work that each of us has to acknowledge that we are fully capable of within ourselves. Because we're human, and we're broken, and we can be judgmental. And we can not like people. And we can not like people for wrong reasons. But the good news is, Jesus can heal that within you. Because he can heal that within me. I mean, he has given me lots of tests in the last month to heal that within me. Because I acknowledged it. And I said, Lord, I want to be better at this. I want to be more merciful. I want to be more graceful toward people that are different than me, that I might not agree with, that I disagree with vehemently, but I want to love them all the same. Teach me, show me, reveal to me. So the first thing is I want us to think about what it means to be diverse in the church. That the work of the Holy Spirit within us can change us to love people that don't look like us and can make our church a better place because of it. But the second thing is that all this diversity is doing one thing. And that's really the crux is that they worship Jesus. They fall down as the bride of Christ to worship the groom, which is Christ himself. There is no bride without the groom. And I say that knowing full well that in the last month, I saw a TikTok of people marrying themselves. Y'all, my generation is disturbed. <laughs> but there is no bride without the groom. And the groom is who the bride falls down and worships. And why are they worshiping? What is the declaration? Because salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That is their song. They're singing with one song together. This is one of the reasons that I don't believe in a classic service and a contemporary service or a traditional service and a modern service because the church, the bride, can't sing one song together. I want us singing one song together. I want us to have the same song on our lips together. Because then I want us, as the scripture says, it says they cry out with what? A loud voice. A loud voice. Some of y'all be out there singing, and you're like, Worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. But the church sings with a loud voice voice. Worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy. He is worthy of this. He is. Sing out. Let us hear you. I have been in churches where they encourage people not to sing out, and I'm like, that's not church. I don't care if you're tone deaf. I don't care if you're out of tune and off key or whatever it might be. 
Cry out, let us hear. Make a loud sound to the Lord our God who is worthy of praise because he is worthy of praise because he is worthy because salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Nothing could be better than that. I have been in stadiums of 40,000 people where everyone is singing the same song, and the band just stops, and the crowd keeps going, and it is magnificent. One day, I'm going to have Sylvia just drop out, and everybody just drop out, but y'all better keep going. We better hear your voice ringing loud and clear for what God has done in your life. What a joyous thing. And where are they singing from within their hearts? This is where I'm going to end. We got a, um, yeah, we got, we still got communion. It's all good. Jesus is good. They are singing in verses 8, starting in verse 18. No, sorry, there's not even 18 verses in here. I can't read my own notes. That's a 3, not an 8. In verse 13, it says this, Then one of, the answer, one of the elders answered, saying to me, These clothed in white robes, who are they, and where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And so the elder said to him, These are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason... They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. And they worship him at his feet, and they throw their crowns down before him. To him who sits on the throne will dwell over them. They are singing because of what God has done in their lives. It's gratitude. When we worship, we worship from a place of gratitude. We need to be so grateful what Jesus has done. So grateful for the work of the cross, for the blood of the Lamb who turned our dirty rags into white glistening robes. That's so good. That's so good. That makes me so excited. Every time, I just can't, every time, it just makes me so excited. But I don't want us to miss something in that passage. It says that these are the ones that come out of the great tribulation. And I want us to be really careful because the definite article in Greek does not work the same that it does in English. In English, when we put the in front of something, we're referring to a very specific thing. Like the cat that dumped the water all over the place. It was the cat that did it. It was that cat. It's definite. New Testament Greek isn't like that. It's more of an indicator of something that is specific and yet generalized. It often is used in front of things that don't have uh, specificity to them, like love. Oftentimes, you will be reading the New Testament in Greek, and it'll say, the love. And you'll be like, what? Not, not attached to the love of God. It'll just say, the love. It's ambiguous. But they want to make it a little bit less ambiguous by just putting the in front of it. In the same way, we can read the Great Tribulation. It's not a specific event, although it could refer to some Great Tribulation that's to come. And I don't want to say that it might not. But I also want to acknowledge that we all have tribulations in our life. And some of them are great to us. 
In fact, Jesus says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace because in the world you're going to have tribulation. But have heart, take courage because I have overcome the world. Jesus said that. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is 2,000 years ago, and they're saying they have to face tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. Tribulation is a promise for the saints. We're going to face it. We're going to go through it. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I've used a lot of James this morning, and I'm thankful for James and his insight. Chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith brings out perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Tribulation pushes us to want to be more like Jesus Christ in our world. And when we're pushed to be more like Jesus Christ, what is that doing for us? It's allowing that seal to be set upon our forehead that all might see that Jesus is who he said he is and he is in our life, that person. So tribulation's a good thing. And so the great tribulation happens to all of us. In our own lives, we face insurmountable circumstances to which we can only go to God to surmount. So go to God. And that way, when you stand before him face to face, you receive a robe dipped in the blood of the lamb, a robe of victory because of the work of Christ, a robe of righteousness because of the work of Christ. A robe of glory because of the work of Christ that everyone can see. It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing, and what do they do? They worship. They worship, and they receive no longer hungry bellies, no longer thirsty tongues. Never more will the sun beat down on them because if you remember, the curse that was given to the ground is that they were going to have to labor and by the sweat of their brow would they eat. But no more. No more sweat in their work. Can you imagine? I'm sweating right now. Can you imagine me standing up here for once and not having sweat just drip down my cheek? I would love that. No more in heaven will our work be burdened by the hot, burning, sweaty sun. And the Lamb will shepherd us. Oof. To be shepherded by the Lamb of God who took away every sin, and he will guide us to the springs of the water of life. 
Does that not sound like Psalm 23? Come on. The shepherd leads us to green pastures and still waters. He leads us to the springs of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. What a joyous place to be. And what it, would it be like if when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, our church looked like that church. Let's pray for it. Good and gracious God, I believe that you are the Lamb, that you were slain and that your work accomplished much within us. And so God, I pray that anything within us that is built up as a bias or prejudice against other people would be squashed by the work of your Holy Spirit within us. That we would be welcoming and lovely and whole and pure in your holy name. And that our church would look like this church body that is worshiping you forever and ever and ever. Amen.